A man's home is his castle. Home sweet home. There's no place like home. We've heard them all. Home is the place where we're supposed to be the happiest and where we feel the safest. Nothing bad is supposed to happen to us at home. At least until it does. You might think you found your dream home. You've verified the year it was built, the square footage, the quality of the neighborhood, even the local school ratings. But do you know if anyone died there? Well, chances are they have, especially if it's an older house. For a while, I lived in a bungalow that had been built in 1905. Like a lot of older houses, it creaked at night. It was impossible to move around silently. And from time to time, creepy secrets were revealed. Like when an acquaintance told me about how a friend of his had once lived in the house and his grandmother had died there in the spare bedroom. Well, he offered this bit of information because I told him I thought I had a ghost. The footsteps in the upstairs hallway, an inexplicable woman's voice, and the fact that the spare bedroom was always ice cold, even when the furnace vent was blowing hot air into the room, was enough to convince me something weird was happening there. But not all houses are a hundred years old and haunted. You might not see a ghost at the open house, but it's not unusual to wonder whether someone died in your house or in a house you're thinking about buying. I mean, it might be a morbid question, but it's one you're entitled to ask since, of course, you want as much information about the house as you can get. Finding out someone died there might make you want to try and sell your house quickly. Or you might be intrigued. Well, depending on how exactly they died because that might be a different situation altogether, but we'll get to that. Many people just don't want to live in a house where someone died. And if you might be one of those people, you can rest assured you're not alone. There are a lot of people like you, and it's always worthwhile to try and find out if someone died in your house and uh, whether they're still hanging around there or not. Financially speaking, stigmatized properties, you know, where murders or gruesome events occurred, that's a real thing. And it can lead to a property being devalued. Depending on the events that occurred at a house, it could decrease the value by a sizable amount, or it might just make it really hard to sell or even rent. Unfortunately, finding out if, when, or how someone died in your house isn't as simple or as free as you might like. Detailed public records, especially for homes built in the pen and paper record keeping era, are not always accurate or reliable. Records may have been lost or were never recorded in the first place. You can search the internet though. There are websites that use police records, news reports, and death certificates to nail down deaths that occurred at pretty much any address. They do it for a fee, but then they never guarantee what they find is completely accurate. Well, there are things you can do on your own too, like read the seller disclosure form, but <laughs> you should probably know that only three states in the entire country have death disclosure laws, California, and then Alaska and South Dakota. And those last two only make the seller spill the beans of a murder or suicide occurred in the last year. Oh, and your realtor? Yeah, they're not required to tell you either. So I know what you're thinking. Ask the neighbors. Well, that would, of course, be a great way of introducing yourself to the neighborhood. Okay, not really. You just seem like a weirdo, especially if you're just considering buying the house and haven't actually moved in. 
But then if you're freaked out enough about moving into a house where someone died, maybe it's better to be safe than sorry. I guess that's up to you. Now, if you haven't found out anything and you're still suspicious, maybe it's a time for you to roll up your sleeves and do some good old-fashioned investigating. There are census records and city directories that can give you the names of people who live there. And if you're concerned about how they died, your local library or historical society, that can prove helpful too. As well as newspaper archives, especially these days when so many newspapers have been digitized. All that may be time consuming, but at least you'll feel like you're in a horror film set in the 1980s. And hey, what's not to love about that? But speaking of horror films, It turns out there may be worse things than just someone dying in your house, as I hinted at earlier. I mean, we've all seen those movies. A family finds a beautiful house on the market for a ridiculously low price, moves in. Things start mysteriously moving by themselves, so the neighbors steer clear, and then the full-scale haunting happens. There's a little research done, and maybe someone asked that nosy neighbor down the street if anything might have happened in the family's new house, and the family finds out that not only did someone die there, the cause of death was murder. Talk about a stigmatized property. A crime scene, and it's haunted? Yeah, that's a standard movie trope, but screenwriters are often quick to admit they get their best ideas from real life. And with season eight of the American Hauntings podcast, we'll be going in search of houses from which those screenwriters could have and sometimes did get some of their best ideas. America's murder houses, where the spirits of the past still linger behind. Throughout the year, we'll be taking you behind the locked doors of both famous and little-known stigmatized properties where murder, violence, and brutal events occurred and have left a mark on the house as a haunting. Now, as someone who's lived and worked in a number of haunted places over the last few decades, I always love a good haunted house story. I've heard literally thousands of them over the years. Stories of footsteps on staircases, lights that turn on and off, apparitions in hallways, I've heard and occasionally experienced pretty much all of them. But the first murder house that I experienced was in Decatur, Illinois, back in the early 1990s. The house had once been owned by a woman named Josephine Cooper, and she was the first woman in the city's history to be convicted of murder in 1921. The thing was, though, I never would have learned the story of the murder she committed if it hadn't been for the ghosts of her victims. Now, we'll never know what drove Josephine to murder. It's possible she had homicidal tendencies all along, although there's no record she ever committed an illegal act in her first 37 years on Earth. But somewhere along the line, she realized that murder was an easy way to get rid of her husband, her uncle, and at least two men who rented rooms in her house. Her first victim, it would later be discovered, was Charles Blake, who rented a room in her home. Her husband, Oliver Cooper, mysteriously died four years later, and then her uncle, Albert McDaniel, died a few years after that. All had died in Josephine's house, All had suffered from long illnesses, and each of them had an insurance policy that paid off Josephine in the event of their deaths. 
but neither the insurance company nor the police saw any cause for concern at the time. That would come later. Not long after the death of her uncle, a new tenant moved into Josephine's place. His name was James Parker, and not only did he rent a spare room, but he and his landlady became lovers. I'm guessing this relationship was hot and heavy, which is why Parker used poor judgment when he signed a $1,000 life insurance policy that paid Josephine if anything happened to him. Well, it didn't take long after the policy became valid for Josephine to start trying to get rid of him. Parker became seriously ill. He deteriorated quickly and died just two days after showing the symptoms of some mysterious ailment. Well, neighbors started to talk, and someone contacted the authorities and suggested they might want to look into Parker's unusual death. My great-grandfather was one of the police officers who came to Josephine's house. After they discovered there had been four men who died there in less than 10 years, the cops finally suspected foul play. There was an urgent call to exhume the other men who died there, but it had been far too long for two of them. Only Josephine's uncle's body was somewhat intact, and when it was exhumed, the coroner discovered that his internal organs contained arsenic in lethal quantities. After Parker's autopsy, it was shown that he had also been poisoned. During a search of her home, the police found letters from Josephine to another of her lovers, J.W. Gordon, asking for poison. Now, he denied giving it to her and was eventually released from jail, but she certainly got it somewhere. At trial, Josephine proclaimed her innocence, saying that Parker had died from drinking too much bootleg liquor. She called the doctor for him, she claimed, but there was nothing that she could do. Oh, when that didn't work, her attorney claimed she was insane, stating that she had the mind of a 13-year-old girl. Just a few years before the first murder, she'd been an inmate in an insane asylum as the result of an injury that she'd sustained. Well, the jury wasn't convinced. Josephine was found guilty and sentenced to 14 years in prison for Parker's murder. Investigators were unable to prove that she was connected to the other deaths, even though they took place in her home. She served 11 years of her sentence and was released early for good behavior in 1933. She died at the age of 77 in 1954. Official versions of her death remain unclear as to whether she jumped or was pushed from the window of the second-story apartment where she was living. And that should have been the end of the story, but it wasn't. In the early 1990s, a friend of mine and his brother purchased the house where Josephine Cooper had once lived for their elderly uncle. Shortly after moving in, he began to complain about strange noises in the house, doors slamming closed, and footsteps going up and down the stairs at all hours of the day and night. While believing that their uncle might be getting senile, the brothers humored him at first. But when his complaints continued, one of the brothers and his wife decided to stay the night in the house and see if there was any truth to his story. Late that night, he was awakened by strange sounds coming from one of the other bedrooms. Worried that something was wrong with his uncle, he hurried to the older man's room and looked inside and was surprised to find him sleeping peacefully and was even more surprised when he heard the weird groaning noises again. 
He searched all over the house and could find no rational explanation for them. He described them later as sounding those as though they were someone in pain. The next morning, his wife admitted she had heard the noises also and added that around 5 a.m., she also heard footsteps on the stairs. She thought at first it was her husband, but he was sleeping next to her at the time. The weird events continued during the uncle's entire occupancy of the house. He always maintained that the place was haunted. When he died a few years later, his two nephews spent many hours at the house making repairs, painting it and getting it ready to be sold. They often heard the phantom footsteps during this time, as well as the painful groaning sounds that came from the back bedroom. Well, it was during this time when they told me about the haunting. I was already at work on my first book at the time about local ghost stories, and this seemed a perfect addition. It was during my research about its past, though, that I learned about Josephine Cooper, the friendly neighborhood serial killer and the victims that died in her house. Victims who had apparently never left. And those won't be the last lingering victims you'll hear about in the season ahead. There are at least 23 more murder houses still to come, each with its own unique story of homicide, horror, and a haunting. This will be the most gruesome and ghost-filled season of the podcast so far, and we're excited to take you on a coast-to-coast journey in search of the true stories that crime has left behind. So on behalf of myself, Troy Taylor, and my co-host, Cody Beck, we invite you to experience Season 8 of American Hauntings with us, which we're calling Home. It's coming your way soon, and you're not going to want to miss a single episode because there's never going to be any way for you to know just what door will be unlocked.